Welcome to Palace Confidential, the weekly podcast all about the royal family where we assemble some of Britain's most fabulous experts and commentators and delve into the news coming out of the palaces to keep you royally clued up. I'm your host, Joe Elvin, editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple and Google. And if you haven't already, why not sign up for the daily Mail Plus briefing at mailplus.co.uk, where you can also watch Palace Confidential on video. Hello and welcome to Palace Confidential, Mail Plus's weekly royal program. I'm Jo Elvin and we are back in the studio and touch wood, the days of remote filming are behind us and we're all very excited about it too. So today we're bringing you a very special episode looking back at the life, of course, of Prince Philip, who sadly died at the age of 99 last Friday. Joining me in the studio for today's program are the Daily Mail Saturday diary editor Richard Eden and the Mail on Sunday's diary editor Charlotte Griffiths. Welcome to you both. Coming up on today's show, the Duke of Edinburgh's official biographer Giles Brandreth shares some insight into the man he knew away from the cameras. Meanwhile, Richard Kay explores a little discussed bond, that between the Duke and his daughter-in-law, Princess Diana. And despite his vintage, historian Dr Tessa Dunlop explains why Philip was a very modern prince. But first, since the announcement of the Duke of Edinburgh's passing, tributes have been paid across the globe, from the House of Commons to heads of state. Many might have expected a grand funeral to go with it, but COVID rules, of course, and the wishes of the Duke mean that won't be the case. The Mail's royal editor, Rebecca English, has the latest. I've just come off a conference call with Buckingham Palace and I have most of the ceremonial detail for Saturday's funeral. Um, the most interesting thing is they have confirmed the Daily Mail's exclusive story today that members of the royal family will be wearing morning coats and medals, not their uniforms. Buckingham Palace are declining to say why, apart from it was a matter for the Queen, but obviously as we revealed today it was over tensions behind the scenes about what the Duke of York and the Duke of Sussex would be wearing. Uh, we now have the full list of 30 guests that will be taking part in the funeral. Obviously the numbers were reduced as a result of Covid. There are no massive surprises there. Um, people, notable people missing however are Prince and Princess Michael of Kent and the Duchess of Kent but they have obviously stood aside to allow three members of Prince Philip's German family to attend instead. Um, the number of the party will be taking part in the procession and they are the Prince of Wales, Princess Anne, uh, the Earl of Wessex, the Duke of York, the Duke of Cambridge, the Duke of Sussex, uh, the Earl of Snowdon who is the Queen's nephew, Princess Margaret's son and Vice Admiral Timothy Lawrence who is Princess Anne's husband. There's been lots of conjecture about the relationship between Harry and William and what's interesting is they won't be standing so shoulder to shoulder in the procession, they'll be in different sides of it. I don't know whether we should read too much into that or not but they will be there following their grandfather's coffin down from the um, state entrance to Windsor Castle down to St George's Chapel. Now as we already know this is going to be quite a unique royal ceremonial funeral because of Covid and uh, what's most marked about that is that the Queen will be wearing a mask throughout. She will leave Windsor Castle with one of her ladies in waiting, both will be masked, they will get into the official Bentley and she will follow behind her husband's coffin and the funeral procession. 
those in the procession, i.e. the other senior royals, they won't be wearing masks in the procession, but they will be forced to put them on when they enter St George's Chapel. And when they get into the chapel, everyone will be socially distanced. Their congregation will not be allowed to sing any hymns. The only singing will be done by a small choir of four people who will be socially distanced from the rest of the congregation. So while all of the final decisions on the arrangements for Saturday have rested with the Queen, Buckingham Palace have told me today that she has tried as much as she could within the restrictions she has to take her late husband's wishes into account. There will also be some uniquely Philip flourishes. As well as the Land Rover we know about that he has asked to have his coffin carried on, it's something he specially designed with this in mind many years ago, he's also asked for several pieces of music to be included. And one of those is a special call to arms played by the Royal Marines Band. We'll also hear the last post at the end of the service when we see his coffin disappear from view, which will sure to be an incredibly moving moment. And just a reminder that the funeral, which will be broadcast live, will be taking place on Saturday at St George's Chapel at three o'clock and proceedings will begin with a one-minute national silence and the national anthem. So let's bring in Richard and Charlotte. Now, Charlotte, coming to you first, as is so often the case with the Royals... This event won't be without its controversy, its drama, its comment, and obviously Harry will be flying back sans Meghan because she's pregnant and is mm. elected to stay at home. But even so, all eyes will be on Harry. How mm. do you think this is going to go, his first reunion with the family? I think it'll go fine. He's already called um, his brother and his cousins. And well, that's boring, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> but I, I think it'll go fine because it, this is his family. This is his yeah. actual family. I hope he feels at home in their company. Of course, we'll all be looking at every single moment between him and William. So actually, maybe there will be a few moments of awkwardness, but I think it will go better, to be honest, than if Meghan had come over. I think if Meghan had come over, there would be too much attention on her and she'd overshadow the whole thing. Um, so I think it will go fine. I'm going to back the brothers on this one to not cause a scene. They must have had some discussions about how to manage their body language, you know, because they will be aware that everybody's sort of like scrutinising every, I mean, every tick, every do, movement. Do you think that in a way they're so lucky to have the face masks this time? Because, you know, the, the lip readers will be out of work, oh, yeah. the body language specialists. I mean, it's going to be lots of people with the face masks on and it will be very hard to... We'll yeah. just be staring into their eyes it's to such, see their reactions. Su such a good point. I hadn't thought about the face mask. That'll definitely be get out of jail free card, especially because um, on Harry's last royal appearance with Meghan, he was trying very hard then to have good body language, and they they did actually fail. <laughs> well, it's like trying to pass a lie detector test, isn't oh, it? It's like, it just makes you more tense. Yeah, it was yeah. devil's stares, left, right and centre. So, uh, yeah, you're right, they may well be saved by those masks. <laughs> and people who are interested in these things, Richard, will be keeping an eye on whether or not Harry is referred to in any part of the services HRH. Yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting point because, of course, when they were, he and Meghan were stripped of their royal titles, they were also told by the Queen that they shouldn't use their Royal Highness um, titles as well. And, and they've kept to that. They haven't used them during their work in America. Um, but how will they be styled on the order of service? Um, you would think that they, they won't have um, the HRH for Harry, but... As we've seen with the uniforms, the Queen does seem very keen to 
maybe appease Harry or keep him on, on side. So maybe it will be used. So it will be interesting to watch. So explain what you mean by the, the appeasement with the uniforms, because apparently now nobody will be wearing them. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, this, this really is a big deal because, you know, um, Prince Philip was a war hero. His, he always felt that he was, he never left the Navy. He was always um, just on leave. And it was very important to him. And it does seem that the Queen has done this in order to, A, um, not um, sort of isolate Prince Harry and make him feel bad, and B, um, to avoid any awkwardness with Prince Andrew, who stepped back from royal duty. So it could be said he shouldn't be wearing a uniform either. But it, I mean, it, it, this feels like, is this, this is all because Prince Andrew wanted to wear the admiral uniform which was a step up in military rank for him is that right it does feel like that doesn't it and you can just imagine andrew kicking up a stink about this thing and uh you know that's the fact that it's so unprecedented is why i think the queen was incredibly clever because it's actually thinking outside of the box isn't it i wouldn't if i was the queen <laughs> i would never have thought to make this really bold move but it does get her out of all manner of um problems with andrew kicking up a but, stink but does it though because if mm. you wanted to wear an admiral uniform to the funeral and now no one's allowed to wear a uniform i mean is it the right decision is it just going to tick off all those people who would normally be wearing that that pomp and ceremony. I mean, personally, I, I feel very sad about this. I think the Queen has been badly advised, I'm afraid, that it seems like they're appeasing um, Harry and Meghan, and that doesn't end well. I mean, you know, he doesn't have those military roles anymore, so he shouldn't be allowed to wear a uniform. But it sounded like I didn't sound, I haven't heard that Harry was upset about not wearing a uniform. This seems like this seems caused by Andrew's fuss mm. about the uniform. Yeah, I mean, we, we don't know, um, but certainly it sort of kills two birds with one stone in that sense. Mm. But mm. but it, it does sound like it was Andrew who, who wanted to wear his uniform and that would have been a problem too. But oh it would have goodness. humiliated, it would have humiliated Harry if he was not wearing a uniform. And it would have played right into this narrative that they're excluding Harry and Meghan. Um, I think it was a very shrewd move of the Queen. It was just exactly the right thing to do to make him feel part of the group. And, you know, we're making this special exception for you. We are not pushing you away from the family. It's a shrewd move, I think. Big day for Moss Bros. Yeah, big day. Um, Charlotte, speaking of Andrew, uh, last weekend he spoke to the BBC, um, ostensibly on behalf of the Queen. Yeah. A lot of people not particularly happy about this. What, what's your thoughts and what can you tell us? Call me a cynic, but even as he walked up to the microphone, my skin just started crawling. I just thought, this is going to be so cringe. And sure enough, on and on he went for several minutes. I think it was eight minutes altogether. And of course, he has every right to mourn for his father. Um, but I just couldn't help thinking, are you spending a little bit too long in this spotlight here have you seized on this as your one opportunity to, to to speak to the cameras for the first time in you know really long time now and one very cynical person suggested that he'd sort of slipped through the net because the queen was mourning this terrible thing had happened to her husband he passed away and she just maybe wasn't on the ball and had somehow allowed this to happen and he took advantage of that Perhaps that's a bit mm. too cynical, but he did seem to be enjoying it. Yeah, I think that is harsh on Andrew, though. I mean, from, from what I've heard, he had the Queen's permission to, um, to talk. They invited the cameras to church at Windsor, and Prince Edward was there as well. And it's, it, you know, why shouldn't he? I mean, it, you know, he's lost his father. Um, his, his mother was obviously not wanting to face the cameras, and Prince Charles was in Gloucestershire, so it, it made sense for her second son to have a word, and, and the, the words he did say were, were 
very effective. He talks about um, Philip being the grandfather of the nation and that made the front pages the next day. So, um, yeah, I'm sure he came up with that on the spur of the moment, Richard. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're cynical, you're cynical. Uh, but, I mean, there are critics who have suggested he's possibly using this as a moment to ingratiate himself back into public life, to rehabilitate his somewhat tarnished image. Is that unfair? I'm in that camp. I'm mm. sorry. I, I, I hate to speak ill of somebody who's grieving for their father, but it just really felt that way. And that was certainly the reaction from a lot of people, as far as I could tell, on, on Twitter and social media. Um, I know you mm. think differently, don't you? Mm. Well, I, I just think, as I say, what, you know, why not? He's, he's got the right to um, remember his father. And I'm sure he will be a great comfort to the Queen in the, in the weeks and months ahead. He, he lives very close to her. Um, and he will be there at her side. I mean, maybe not at public events yet, but hopefully Prince Andrew can resume his public life as soon as possible. Well, as the longest serving royal consort in British history, Philip had a unique role to fill and to create for himself, one that wouldn't have been easy to step into as a military man in the 1940s. Dr Tessa Dunlop has been taking a look at how he balanced tradition with navigating a fast-changing world. Philip was a European prince who committed himself wholeheartedly to Britain and our most famous family. He was one of the youngest first lieutenants in the Royal Navy and a war hero to boot, a man whose medals really meant something. But, and here's the rub, he was also a loyal husband prepared to subjugate his alpha male for both queen and constitution. Born into a man's world in 1921, where women were still poppets and dear things, and boys defined by their feats of daring do, the Duke of Edinburgh was an archetypal man's man. Great at sport, head boy at his experimental boarding school, he went on to fight bravely in both the Mediterranean and the Pacific in the Second World War. But he was also confident enough to walk in style behind his younger wife, a role that most men born in the 20s would have blanched at, let alone an unreconstructed male like Philip. Only an individual with emotional intelligence, someone who can see beyond his own ego, could have survived the course. Beneath the prince's brusque exterior, there was no doubting his compassion. Elizabeth and Philip's first years of marriage heralded the golden age for young love. 1947 saw more weddings than ever before and most famous among them was this royal couple on the cusp of greatness. Now, no marriage is perfect, but the waters that our queen and her liege man of life and limb have had to charter are, quite frankly, extraordinary. Commitment to Elizabeth meant the premature end of Philip's naval career and the sacrifice of his own personal freedom. He knew what he was going into and clearly had made peace with it. The greater goal was to support his wife and queen. Every good monarch requires an able consort. Just ask Victoria, Elizabeth's great-great-grandmother. But unlike meddlesome Prince Albert, Philip didn't try to take over. He supported change from the sidelines. It's worth looking across at the American presidency, which in some respects is an elective kingship, modelling much of its pomp and dynastic preference on our own constitutional monarchy. But America's yet to have a first man, and when they do, Philip will be a tough act to follow.
It can't have been easy for Philip, especially in the early years. He was a progressive with ideas of his own. But across 73 years of service, no matter what, he always allowed his wife, our Queen, to take centre stage and expected no less from anybody else. Richard, he had an extraordinarily pampered, comfortable, privileged life, Prince Philip. And so describing his job as difficult might be a bit of a stretch, but it was a, a complex role to live through, wasn't it? I think it really was. And, and the coverage since Philip's death has been so interesting because it's, it's revealed how he carved out a role for himself because he really didn't have a designated role. Um, and, and we've seen the difficulties of that with, um, you know, with Prince Harry and with sort of second sons that in royal life you have the monarch and then for everyone else, apart from the heir to the throne, they don't have to find roles. And Philip did so well with his different interests to carve out a role. I don't know if you've been seeing, but the, um, the Daily Mail's been running these historic supplements this week and they've been so interesting with, you know, Prince Philip um, flying Concorde or taking an interest in sort of warning about agricultural policy in mm. Europe before, before we join the EU and things like this. And he, he really found um, a role for himself and made it his own. And I think that was incredibly difficult. And I think he endured quite a bit of criticism along the way. Do you think he felt emasculated by his role, particularly, you know, in the 1940s and 50s when men were men and women were women and everything was much more traditional? Yeah, I mean, there's the famous quote to um, his mentor, Lord Mountbatten, about, you know, feeling like an amoeba because um, his children weren't allowed to take his surname, um, that sort of thing. And that's been quite well dramatised in The Crown as yes. well. You know, it's, I, I think um, definitely that, that was a challenge for him. But the he, he has um, managed to sort of overcome that in, in a way that other royals have struggled with. And, and the fact that he's done so much and achieved so much in that role as consort it is, um, you know, it's, it's a real lesson for others. And it's such a shame that others like Prince Harry have not managed to achieve that, mm. I think. Charlotte, this week the coverage has been very interesting. The communication, the photos released from the royal family, mm. like this one on the front page of yeah. the Mail today with all the grandchildren, they're really reflecting on his life as a grandfather, as a family man. Yeah. And I know f personally I've always had this image of him being a rather gruff character. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that, that that's true? Or, and in hindsight, we're sort of like repackaging him or is, th is this the man? No, I gather that as a grandfather, he was really hands-on and incredibly attentive to his grandchildren. Um, as a great-grandfather, uh, by all accounts, he was a little bit like, there's a nice baby, tap her on the head. <laughs> I've you done know, that. I haven't got that much time. <laughs> but yeah. I have to say, this, this picture is really striking. And it's, it, what really upset me was it was taken before Archie was born, of course. But, but you know, it's just a shame he never really got to know Archie in the, in the same way as he got to know his other great-grandchildren. But by all accounts, he didn't take that much interest in his great-grandchildren. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite interesting. As much as he loved them, I'm sure. <laughs> so, obviously... The backdrop to all this is we're living through a pandemic and more people than ever, sadly, have been attending funerals and, and very different, low-key, distanced funerals. Do you think it's actually a, a good thing or how, how do we balance something that would normally have a lot of ceremony and grand ceremony with the tone of the nation? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, it, it's very sad for Prince Philip that it will be such a small ceremony. I mean, I think he always wanted a um, no great fuss, but in royal terms, that means St George's Chapel with probably 800 guests in all their finery. 
Um, so in reality, when you've just got 30 people there, it will be very scaled down. Mm. But it really does show the royal family in tune with the rest of the country. Um, a beloved aunt of mine died during the crisis and I wasn't even able to attend her funeral. Mm. And that's been the case across the country, that people have missed out on funerals of loved ones and other occasions. So that, that does show them in touch. And it would, it would be quite odd, jarring really, to have some huge event perhaps when everyone else has had to scale things back in that way. So I'm sure they'll put on a good show, there'll be the military there and they will, um, you know, do the best for him. I know that all the courtiers are determined to give Philip as good a send-off as, as is humanly possible, um, but it will be um, very different to other royal occasions. With his war record and no-nonsense persona, the Duke projected a certain image towards the public and press, but as always, things are never that straightforward. Here, the Mail's editor-at-large, Richard Kay, explores his role as peacekeeper during the marriage difficulties between Prince Charles and his daughter-in-law, Diana, the man she called Pa. Well, I think there was always a strong bond of affection between Philip and Diana from the moment she arrived in the royal family. I mean, he recognised in her someone who was struggling with the adjustment to royal life. And like, uh, like him, um, she was an outsider and he wanted to help her and encourage her. The fact that she was extremely attractive um, was no handicap to Philip. Um, and, and he enjoyed her company. And, um, and in fact, he, he remained a fairly strong ally of Diana's throughout the turbulent years that followed. I think what surprises people about it is that Philip had this reputation for being very crusty, um, very demanding um, with his own children. But with spouses, he was much more gentlemanly, kind. And with Diana in particular, he formed a really quite an interesting uh, relationship. I, I think a relationship that historians will want to look more at in the future. The marriage of the heir to the throne was crucial, at least how the royal family saw it, and indeed the country saw it in, um, in the early 1990s. Divorce, that very word, was anathema to the royal family. It had echoes of what happened to King Edward VIII and the abdication crisis of, of 1936. And of course, Charles's own role, as uh, when he succeeds his mother, he will be the titular head of the Anglican Church, governor of the Church of England. I mean, the, these, the, it's uh, an important moment. And, and the idea that a divorced Prince of Wales um, could succeed at that time seemed highly unlikely. And there were many critical voices uh, being raised. And Philip felt it was his task to see if there was any common ground, if anything could be achieved by his uh, intervention and making both Charles and Diana see sense in his view. I mean, he thought that they could come together and perhaps have a, a meaningful official public relationship, but lead separate lives behind palace walls. I think these letters, um, and I, I've read them, I mean, they are Unflinching, I think, is the best word to describe them. I mean, he's tough on, on Diana. He's equally tough on Charles too. But they're very thoughtful. They're laced through with some very good ideas. He's clearly given it a good deal of thought. I mean, in one of the letters, for example, he talks about how he had made himself read the Andrew Morton book, about which we all know a lot, but which led really to the, to the split between Charles and Diana. Um, it's hard to imagine uh, Prince Philip doing that, but he, but he did it as a sort of a form of education, if you like. I mean, I know uh, from talking to, to Diana that at the time uh, she thought there was a sort of an element of almost cruelty in them, but 
they weren't like that at all. And, and she came to reassess that view. They were affectionate. I mean, he was clearly very fond of her. I mean, I think the, the most telling line in all the letters was, was the one where he says that he and Ma, the Queen, were astonished by the idea that Prince Charles would have basically abandoned Diana for Camilla. I mean, it just, it, that seemed something that to them could never possibly happen. Um, however, he did ask and he did invite Diana to look into her soul too, uh, that she, it can't all be Charles's fault, basically, he was saying that, you know, she got certainly, in his view, far too seduced by the media, by the press attention, and that too was a contributory factor. Well, Philip was was very much um, the paterfamilias of the royal family. The, the queen was the monarch, the sovereign, and, and, and master of everything in, in front of her. But she deferred to Philip in all matters concerning the family. Um, you know, the, the famous quote about it was, you know, the queen wears the crown, but Philip wears the trousers. And, and I, I think that summed it up. And that, and that really was an attitude that persisted throughout the early years of, of Charles's life and his siblings. He decided where they would go to school. He was the one um, who was so intimately involved in all their marriage difficulties. But eventually, of course, the baton has been passed on. I mean, in recent years, Philip has not been uh, as intimately involved in family discussions. So, for example, the whole Mexit saga uh, involving Harry and Meghan, Philip absented himself from that. He really felt that he was too old uh, and he could no longer offer a meaningful contribution. Didn't mean he didn't care. He remained caring up until the very end and he was extremely disappointed by Harry and Meghan's decision to remove themselves from royal life, but he didn't take a strong position on it. So, Richard, we all know the phrase, the Queen wears the crown, Philip wears the trousers. <laughs> it's, a, it's a cute, funny one, but it, do you think it does sum up what went on behind those palace doors? I remember someone telling me that after Prince Philip retired and went to live in, um, in Norfolk, Someone said to the Queen, oh, you know, you must be very sad. You, you haven't got um, Philip around anymore. And she said, no, no, it's great having no one to boss me around. <laughs> <laughs> and I think she, obviously she was sort of joking. But I think um, that, you know, he did make his presence felt as well. And um, I think, you know, generally that was a very good thing. But um, I imagine when e everybody is obsequious and, and, you know, sort of like bowing to you, it must be mm. actually quite nice to have someone who tells you how it is. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. And it wasn't she wise to let him have um, the family life to be in charge of, because otherwise he would have just been driven mad by always being two feet behind her. So I think she probably took a very wise decision early on. I thought it was interesting, Charlotte, that discussion about Philip taking the conscious decision to step away from those infamous Mexit discussions. Yeah. In hindsight, do you think that was the right decision? I think it was the right decision. Um, what a mess it all was. He was at the end of his life. Um, you know, he actually has been unwell for a while. And, you know, it was about time. He just could let, sit this one out, I'd say. It's probably very wise to let him do that, I think. Yeah, in the too hard basket, I think, that one. Yeah, too hard. Um, and behind, we, he, as I was saying earlier, he has this bluff image, this, you know, really sort of like sturdy military persona. But the more we hear coming out, the more suggests he was actually much more complex emotionally. Do you think that's true? He does seem to be a really complex, fascinating character, doesn't he, Prince Philip? When you read, yes, on the, on the one hand, the militaristic side and um, very much in favour of sending the boys to Gordonston and having a sort of military-style education, that type of thing. But then on the other, he was a keen artist. He, 
He wrote poetry, I think, as well. He had very different sides to his character, and I'm sure that's what um, appealed to the Queen as well. Mm. Well, yeah, it's a, I mean, isn't it the longest successful marriage in royal history? I'm sure. Yeah, it's Pretty quite amazing. extraordinary, isn't it? Anyway, let's move on now. Well, most of us watch the royals from afar, getting glimpses mainly at state occasions. Giles Brandreth had a personal relationship with Philip that dated back 40 years. And as his official biographer, Brandreth saw a side to the Duke that others rarely got to see. In his words, they were not friends, but definitely friendly. He gave us some fascinating insight into the man he knew. It began, oh goodness, more than, well, no, about 20 years ago, because uh, I got to know the Duke of Edinburgh through the first national charity that he took on back in the 1940s, the National Playing Fields Association. He became its president. And in the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s, I got involved in the charity and was amazed to find when I turned up at the offices that he was there, he was running it hands-on. And uh, I got to know him, to like him and to admire him and to find he wasn't quite the caricature that sometimes was presented of him. Anyway, uh, he showed me many kindnesses over the years when he discovered I wanted to be an MP. I don't think he thought much of that as an idea. But anyway, he, he said, have you been to the state opening of parliament? I said, no, I've, I've, I've never been. He said, you, know, you don't know what's going on, do you? I said, well, I know. So he sent me an invitation to go as his guest to the state opening of parliament. And then a few years later, when I lost my seat, I think he wasn't surprised, he kindly called up and said, anything I can do to help? And I said, well, I'm going to go back into journalism. And um, I said I could do with a sort of ace, A1, A-list celebrity to interview. He said, well, I'm not a celebrity. I said, no, but you are A-list. Could I interview you? And he sighed and sort of, well, he agreed. And he gave me what really was, I suppose, the, the only personal interview I think he ever gave to anyone. It appeared in the papers. And people said to him, it's quite good. This fellow seems to have, you know, got it about right. So when his 80th birthday was approaching. He, there was a big event being held, I think it was the Royal Albert Hall, and he needed a short biography written about him. It was for the Outward Bound Trust, the event. So he said, will you do it? So I did it. And it really is from that beginning that this final portrait has emerged. It's been growing over the years. And it was quite an exacting experience writing it. Uh, it was fascinating because, you know, because I had his blessing with the first version, I was able to, to meet people. I was able to walk with him, talk with him as he went about his official duties. He introduced me to the Queen and I met various members of his family, his generation, people like Countess Mountbatten who was still alive. So it was completely gripping. But I then had to take the proofs to Buckingham Palace for him to see. And I can vividly remember scrunching across the gravel to the Privy Purse entrance of Buckingham Palace, feeling so apprehensive as I took in my proofs for the great man to see. And I have to tell you, he, um, he made no uh, corrections on matters of opinion. He didn't interfere with the content of the book at all, except he did correct mistakes, factual mistakes. He was very keen on facts. He was an avid correspondent and he, he he typed his own letters and then later you know, word process came along. He did, was a pioneer of that. And then he would actually you know, do his own emails. And he, he wrote a lot of letters with a lot of exclamation marks. He loved exclamation marks. If you didn't get one exclamation mark, you'd be surprised. You usually got two, often three or four in a row. I know, for example, uh, that he felt that to give personal interviews was, well, to quote him, 
madness and no good comes of it. He said that to me in relation to interviews that had been given about, by Prince Charles and Diana, Princess of Wales, back in the 1990s when their marriage had collapsed. And he felt that was a mistake. And uh, I think he would have felt that the recent interview with Oprah Winfrey that uh, Prince Harry and Meghan gave would have been a mistake as well. He was a huge admirer of uh, Prince Harry, obviously um, a wonderful grandson and a good military man. And he thought the achievement of the Invictus Games was, was wonderful. But his rule was, don't do TV interviews. If you must, do them to talk about your work. Prince Philip was a pioneer. He was uh, a progressive. He looked to the future. He was the first member of the royal family to give an interview, for example, to, on television in the 1950s to Panorama. But as he said, to talk about the work, what I'm doing, not to talk about me. That's a mistake. He told me uh, once that he said, you won't remember this, but 1954, and of course, I was a little boy, I was alive, but I didn't remember it. He said, after the coronation, we went on tour, we went to Australia. He said, and millions of people came out, millions. And I stood next to the Queen in an open-top car, and we drove, drove through the streets, and there were millions, millions of people cheering the Queen. And he said, if she'd taken that for herself personally, it would have been corrosive, but she didn't. She doesn't. The Queen is the same with one person or a million people. And that's the trouble. If you think it's about you, it'll end unhappily. It's about the work, the privileged position you're in. You must try to fulfill the role. So that was, that was his view of these things. And, and I, know, I know, for example, <laughs> that he wouldn't have been watching The Crown. As he said, I, I, I don't watch soap operas. Um, and that was his fear. In fact, not his fear. He expressed it to me in words that um, the royal family had been turned into a soap opera. Uh, curiously, and that's the, the fascinating thing about Prince Philip, and, and the reason that I feel so privileged to have spent a lot of time, A, talking with him, and B, researching and writing this final portrait of him, is that he lived so long, a century of life, and therefore of experience, and of royal experience too. You couldn't be more royal than Prince Philip was. Both sides of his family were royal. The Queen is only royal on one side of her family. Her father was indeed King George VI, and she's a great-great-granddaughter of Queen Victoria. But Prince Philip was a great-great-grandson of Queen Victoria, and he was royal on both sides of his family. There's not a Kaiser, King, um, Emperor to whom he wasn't related. So he'd seen it all. He'd seen the abdication crisis at first hand. He'd married Princess Elizabeth in the 1940s. He followed, he was there at the ringside seat for all the scandal, so-called, about Princess Margaret and who she was going to marry. He had seen it all. And he therefore, there was sort of, uh, there was wisdom. I think the reason he didn't want to give interviews and felt it was a mistake to give interviews is the last question is never enough. He said, it's like photographers. You turn up and you smile and they say, oh, just another. And then you do that. And they say, just another. And you do one more, just another. They keep wanting one more picture, one more. And he said, that's what it's like with the interviews. You tell them one thing, they want something more. And that's why the Queen never has given an interview. Uh, when I was writing my book, I had lunch one day with the, then, the Queen's then private secretary. And I said, oh, give me some color. You know, what is the, you know, what's the Queen like for lunch? And he said, no, if I tell you that, then whenever she goes for lunch, that's what she's served. 
Once we made the mistake of saying that she liked Victoria Sponge in 1952, at every single function she turned up at, there was Victoria Sponge. He said, it's just not, it's not worth doing. Give them one answer, they want another. Charles' book, Philip, The Final Portrait, will be published 27th of April. And now, Richard, you're not quite at book length yet, but I hear you have a royal writing project of your own on the go. What can you tell us? This is very exciting. From next week, we will have a Palace Confidential newsletter, which um, I think I'll be writing, and it will be sent out to everyone who signs up with all the, all the royal news, all the gossip, and, um, and links to what we're talking about here on the programme. So, um, yeah, please, all sign up. I will do that immediately. Well, and if you'd like to sign up for Richard's weekly email on all the latest news and gossip, only on Mail Plus, go to www.mailplus.co.uk slash newsletters. And that's all from us today. Thank you so much to my guests for joining me, Rebecca English, Richard Eden, Charlotte Griffiths, Dr. Tessa Dunlop, Richard Kay and Giles Brandreth. Phew. Stick here on Mail Plus this weekend for full coverage of the funeral of the Duke of Edinburgh. Don't forget to sign up to Richard's newsletter and join us next week, of course, for another episode of Palace Confidential. Bye-bye.